Welcome to The James Quandell Show, where I interview the world's experts and share how you can live your life to the fullest, be present and connect deeply with others, and discover your unique calling. On today's episode, I interviewed Joe Templin, the author of the number one Kindle new release in professional development titled Everyday Excellence. In this episode, Joe and I discuss how to foster a growth and abundance mindset and the 1,000-hour rule why it's important to sprinkle your life with adventure and challenges, and we explain the nuances of learning from a mentor, having accountability partners, and coaching others, also known as the plus, minus, and equals equation. We discussed all this and much, much more, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy this inspiring conversation with Joe. Joe and I were chatting, and I didn't ask him the question that is a pet peeve of mine, what do you do? Because it basically means nothing. The answer that someone gives you usually is just some job title. It doesn't actually define who they are in any way. And he said, avocation and profession, there's often a misalignment. And I want to know what that meant. So I stopped him and said, hey, let's hit record. So basically, James, if you look, avocation is calling. It is what you are meant to do. And occupation basically is either an invading foreign force or it is occupying, it's taking up time. And something like 75% of Americans have an occupation that they don't love, that they, you know, doesn't get them all excited. I mean, Sunday nights, I have always had trouble sleeping, not because I'm worried about the next day, but because I'm so excited to get on up. And I, I run my own gig for the most part, and I get up on Saturday mornings and I'll sleep in an extra half hour till 5 a.m., but I still get on up. I'm still doing my morning stack of habits. I'm rolling into doing things that I love. I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm researching. I do podcasts over the weekend too. I coach, I consult. I do all these things because it is just a reflection of who and what I am, which is helping to make other people better. I mean, Muhammad Ali said we were put on this earth. The service that we pay is rent for living here. And I'm like that in a lot of ways. I just, I love helping bring out the excellence in other individuals and organizations. So what would you say to the 75% of the people who aren't, there's a misalignment of their passions and their career to get them back like aligned? So one, they need to understand what truly calls them. So um, all too often, people will just take the first job or they get, you know, pigeonholed or they care, and they don't even remember what excites them, what gets their juices flowing. And so the first thing is to explore and try and find that, then find some way to either inject it into what you're doing for work or find a way to tailor and move your work, your career in that direction. My nickname is Head Geek. You know, I'm a physicist by background. I'm a polymath, you know, um, and I just have this incredibly broad range of interests. And so the writing and consulting is a natural outgrowth of that because I can literally explore all these different areas, go down the different rabbit holes, pursue what's interesting me, you know, go off on these side quests and tangents whenever and consolidate all this and bring it back into that main purpose of being able to serve and help others. So an example that I use that uh, people under about 40 years old 
typically glom onto pretty well is that if you look at life as the grand quest where we're going to get the castle and save the princess and get the treasure and all that, you have all these side quests. The side quest might be talking to the weird, weird old man in the tavern. That's me. Um, it might be taking and just uh, a mini vacation to recharge so that you're rested for the future battles. It might be taking a course at a community college. You know, Steve Jobs is famous for after he dropped out for taking all sorts of courses that just interested him, including a calligraphy course. And that's the reason why we end up having all the great uh, fonts overall is because he did all these different things. And so if you look at every situation as like side quests where you're getting resources that ultimately can help you with your main quest, figure out what that main quest is because it might not be the one that was written into the game instructions. It might be something completely different for you. But do these side quests with the eye on how is this going to make me the best possible me so that I can achieve what I am put on this earth to do? So the folks that have this misalignment, are they unhappy or are they, do they know that it's a misalignment? Like what, like if they were to be asked? I can't remember who said it, but most men live lives of quiet desperation. That sounds like a Thoreau quote, I think. I know a lot of people who hate being attorneys. I know people who are doctors who hate 95% of what they do. And if you're getting to that level of non-enjoyment, you need to make a change because that creates all sorts of additional stress, makes your body produce cortisol. You don't recover. You know, it unnaturally ages you. So if you're looking at what you're doing and saying, geez, 90% of the time I hate it. You know, if that 10% of the time is not incredible, like you're know, a professional athlete, 90% of their time is not spent playing the game, but that 10% is completely worth it. But if you're like most people and you're working 45 hours a week, and 40 of it is absolutely soul crushing change find a way to change it might take six months it might take three years but start looking at it because in three years if you're in the same situation guess what you've got three more years of being beaten down and all the negative consequences there are so did you ever experience that where you went to bed on sunday or woke up on monday and you were dreading going to work like were you ever in that position I did get in that position because of the people that I worked with and the management slash leadership of my organization that literally seemed like their entire job was to tell me no and make it so that I could not do what I was supposed to be doing, which was helping people. And they just put obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in my way. And then when I consulted people with the home office or other, uh, offices it's like no that no they're just doing that to be jerks they're just causing problems so it's like all right fine i'm gonna take my ball and i'm going someplace else and that's when i ended up going out on my own and absolutely loving most of it yes it is stressful yes there are times when i'm like god i have the worst boss in the world me uh but it is on whole a much better position and if you're doing it right you're learning from your mistakes and moving in the direction of that castle that you ultimately want. It takes a lot of self-confidence to work for yourself. And I quit my job in 2016 and have been self-employed since then. 
And it's every few months I question if I made the right choice because if you don't put in an unbelievable amount of effort, you won't get paid. You can't just show up and phone it in. You have to execute every single day or you'll yeah, fail. Yeah, time off is unpaid. And yes, sometimes we need to recharge to be able to continue to go hard. But for the right person, being an entrepreneur, being self-employed is the greatest thing. But as Jocko Willink says, discipline equals freedom. And people who don't have the discipline to do what they need to do to get up in the morning, to do the boring stuff that you hate. I mean, for example, um, when, in my old career, I had to pick up the phone every single day to schedule appointments with potential clients. And when I first started, we were told you needed to make 30 dials a day and be able to get four or five new appointments per day. And then it eased off over time once you built your business. But I hated phoning. I hated phoning so much I did not have a phone in my apartment. I hated phoning so much that I practiced it on my pet fish every single day. Fish never you know, gave me an appointment, but I practiced it. And I studied this psychology around it. I got to the point where I could get one new appointment per day on four to five dials per day on average. Because I hated it so much, I needed to master it and minimize the time that I could do it. And even today, 20 plus years later, I still hate picking up the phone to call people. I hate talking on the phone. You know, it's, it, I get shivers, but I mastered it and I do it. And even today, I mean, it's now roughly noon where I am. This morning, I picked up the phone and I did what I needed to do, even though I hate it. So having that discipline to do the daily things allows you to have the fun things. So we talked about that misalignment of people and what they do. If 90% of your day you hate, but 10% you love, that 10% better be truly incredible. Well, to be disciplined as an entrepreneur, maybe 15 to 25% of your day when you're getting going is the stuff that you absolutely hate. But if you don't do that 25%, you don't get to do the 75% that's fun. It actually pays the bills. I think you made a great point there that once you practiced and studied and you got better at that skill, it sounds like it was a little less unbearable because you were better at it. Uh, it was more bearable simply because the time I had to spend on it was so much less. I still hate it. I mean, like I get shivers and I will do almost anything to avoid having to do it. What do you not like about it? I don't know. You know, maybe, you know, I'm scared somebody's going to be mean to me over the phone and reach out and death touch me. Um, <laughs> maybe I just like don't want to bother people, even though I know that I provide incredible value and the time that they spend with me will be some of the best time that they could ever invest in themselves and their business and their future. Maybe, you know, it's that every single time that I call somebody that is taking that asset of that uh, referral or introduction or that potential client, and it needs to translate from potential to either reality or throw it out. And so the finality of it might impact me. I don't know. But you know what? I still pick up the phone and do what I need to do. Of the thousands and thousands of calls that you've made, how many have been mean to you? Oh, no. Maybe a few hundred. But you know what? Have these people ever seen me face to face? Probably not. And if they did, you know what? They realized, oh, I was rude to you. So 
And here's the thing. There's 350 million Americans. So there's more clients out there. And this is one of the things that people don't realize is this abundance mentality. If you are doing something that is fundamentally valuable and there's enough people out there, you literally can never run out of prospects and clients. So just keep doing it and do more of it and you'll have more fun. You'll get better with it and you'll build a reputation of excellence. And so just keep doing it. And yes, I still hate picking up the phone. I probably always will. So be it. I still do it. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you you hear in today's culture a lot about abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset. And if you think the product or service that you're selling isn't very good, you're not going to think there's very many customers out there. If you think it's amazing, you're not going to be able to find enough customers for you. Exactly. You want to tell everybody. And so if the product ultimately is you, or something you've created, or your capability to change other individuals through something, whether it's legal services or consulting or whatever else you bring to the table, you know what? All sales ultimately is a transfer of belief. Either they're transferring their doubt to you, or you're transferring your belief to them. And so that's why you study whatever it is that you're selling, whether it's a product or yourself, and you maximize it so that you can create the most benefit for other individuals. And if you do that, you will never run out of work. So there's a whole debate on generalists versus specialists. Mm -hmm. And I think Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett said, everyone else, if they want to maximize their income, should become specialists. But we went the opposite route and we read widely and became generalists. Do you have any opinions on that? Because it sounds to me like you're a generalist. You like to do a little bit of everything. And here's the thing. I'm not a generalist in that I know just a tiny little bit of everything. With many areas, what you do is you actually dive deep. You don't have to go, you know, a thousand miles deep on things. But as Tim Ferriss talks about, to be conversational in a language will take six months to a year and you get 80, 85% of it. It's then going to those next levels where you get absolute true mastery on things where you then have to spend years and years and years. And if you look, what is the return on your investment going from having really good knowledge to something to being an absolute expert or you're really good in one area and you then learn about all sorts of related areas and can build excellence as opposed to true mastery. So you get to that 80, 85% level instead of the 99% level. You can get really, really good in a ton of different areas. And if they are completely unrelated, if you can then allow the ideas and concepts from them to cross pollinate and literally have babies, then you can actually be synthetically superior because you can think like a physicist and a martial artist simultaneously. You can be a poet and a psychologist simultaneously. And so if you can then have these different mindsets, this and this, and be able to combine them, you're going to create concepts and ideas that other people can't really. So my 
ultra marathon running combined with my insight of physics and my understanding of taxation gives me unique perspectives that when I'm talking with a client, I can serve them much better because that Venn diagram becomes fairly unique and there's value in it for that. That is amazing. And Malcolm Gladwell coined, you know, in his book Outliers, the term, I think it was from Erickson, a researcher in Florida, the 10,000 hour rule. And yep. I do not like the 10,000 hour rule personally. I have been trying to get out there into the world that we should follow the 1,000 hour rule and spend 1,000 hours on 10 different things and get proficient at all of them. Because like you said, the intersection of these ideas, you are now the best in the world at them. So my Taekwondo master taught me years and years ago to do a technique, you need to do it a hundred times. To understand it, you need to do it a thousand times. And to master it, you need to do it 10,000 times. Okay. So to truly understand it, doing it that thousand, that's like that thousand hours. So you know what? It, unless you're going to be like a full contact fighter or you're going to be an instructor or stuff like this, you don't need to be a master in all these different things. But if you can be really, really good in multiple areas that then you can have, as I said, that synthetic knowledge of bringing from here and from here together, then that's when you create uniqueness. And so being as you said, expert in 10, 15 areas that sort of cross relate in some capacity and be able to draw from them, you're going to be able to do some pretty incredible things to help others. And ultimately, you're going to have a lot of fun with it because you're going to be living very often near the edge of your knowledge and capability and pulling new things and constantly growing and learning and evolving and pushing yourself. And that's really where the arena of flow is. That's also for your brain health where you can stave off a lot of the complacency that happens in older age by continuing to push your limitations and learning new things. Because you're not operating on automatic. So one of the things that they do with people who are starting to have Alzheimer's or former stroke victims or things like that is that they have them learn to brush their teeth with the other hand, that they use their weak hand for other things, that they start trying to play an instrument that they start trying to learn a new language because it is similar in some capacities because all languages have rules and you know you still brush your teeth go round and round circle small comes in all or you use your right hand or your left hand so drawing from those is expanding your capabilities making you forced to use the neuroplasticity and change and grow. And so here's the thing. If you can do that by choice consistently, whether you're in your 20s or your 70s, you're going to maintain that green and growing mindset. I mean, the great cellist Pablo Casals was in his 90s and still practicing. And when asked why, he said, because I think I'm getting better. Pablo Picasso in his 90s was still drawing and doodling and painting and changing up his style and exploring. And, you know, this is somebody who completely changed their professional identity, what, half dozen, dozen times? 
and so was relevant for decades and decades compared to other people who basically burned out. So if you're in your 50s or 60s and you still feel like you have a career misalignment or you're not living up to how you were created, there's still time for you to get on a different path, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, my dad retired at 80 years old and he jokes that I'm never going to retire. My uh, advisor for my master's degree retired in his 90s because they forced him to. And, you know, he'd still show on up and do research and stuff, even though, you know, technically he wasn't allowed. And so he was exploring new things and learning new things. And so it's just, all right, so you're 50 years old. It's not like the old days where you retired at 62 and you had a gold watch and a full pension and your family lived next door and we had this nuclear family. And then you had a heart attack at 67 and dropped dead. If you're 50 years old and relatively healthy, you got another 35 to 40 plus years in you. And that's just relatively healthy. That's not like, you know, seriously investing it. So if you've got another 35 years, if you change your direction by a couple of percentage points each year, even starting at 50, by the time that you're 60, you're off in a completely different direction. So rockets, you know, we don't try and make a hard right-hand turn because we can't. But if we're going all the way to the moon, we make micro adjustments and we change the flight path. And that's exactly how we should be looking at our lives. Because if you're 30 years old, you have another 45 years of quality work in you. Think about that. You have one and a half times your lifespan still. I'm leveling up to 50 this year. Or I'm going to turn 30, 20 because I'm only 30, 19. I refuse to admit my age. But, you know, so I'm leveling up to 50 later this year. I am less than halfway through my life. I'm going to make it to 105 and I'm going to win an age division race in the age 100 plus division. Okay? Because I'm not a fast runner, so I need to outlast everyone, literally. But, I mean, so I've got another 50 plus years in me. I've got another 40 years of productivity and guidance and influence. Okay? So if I look at where I am today versus how I was as a 10-year-old kid, and I can continue on at least even a portion of that growth curve, what can I accomplish? And I get to choose, all right, this isn't working quite the way I want. I'll make a slight change. And over weeks, months, a couple of years, you can completely bend the curve of your future. We all have that capability. It comes down to the little choices on a daily basis that change our outcome. You're speaking my language here. I'm extremely goal-oriented. My wife and I have this program we developed called the Family Board Meeting where we set 20-year goals and then quarterly we check in them, annually we check in on them, and we work towards them. But what if someone's listening to this and they're not that goal-oriented and they're okay with where they're at? Like, What should they do to maximize their time if they don't really have big goals? They don't have the the big goal that they want to change. You know, there's not a tremendous amount of misalignment. Focus on the little things. Okay, what is one small habit that I can modify in some way that's going to make me feel better over the next couple of months? Is it walking for five minutes a day? Is it going on Wikipedia and learning a fact a day? Is it 
talking to one person per day that I've ignored for the past couple of years. What is the one little thing that I can do that personally makes me feel better overall? So instead of having a grand vision, you know, do these little things, eat slightly healthier, you know, cut down on the salt, cut down on the processed foods, you know, read something, listen to music for 10 minutes a day, you know, once a week, find a new band to listen to because, you know, though being able to find new experiences like that is relatively easy and the compounding effect over a three month period is going to expand your vision. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to make you look better. It's going to make you healthier. It's going to make you more productive with work or a better communicator in your relationship. So instead of getting the big goal, you say, for the next month, I'm going to do something little. So everyone or a lot of people make New Year's resolutions and it's you know this big thing. No. What I did for about two, three-year period is each month I would do something slightly different. So one month I'd give up uh, sugar. Another month I would give up fried food. Another month I was going to, I did 50 push-ups a day every day for that month, you know, and you just choose these different things. And after a month of no sugar, you know, and then you go have sugar, you consume like a small fraction of what you did before. And anybody can do anything for a one month period, basically. So just choose these little things and rotate through them and find what, you know, really resonates with you. Maybe you're enjoying reading, you know, this philosopher or, you know, this sort of thing. And so you then do more of it and realize that you have an attraction and and navigation towards it. Maybe, you know, you start working out a little bit more every single day and you realize, oh, I actually enjoy this. And you keep on that. It's this discovery process. So this is one of the things when we go to college, it is life is a giant smorgasbord laid out for you there. You can take juggling, you can take any martial art, you can... uh, join these different cultural groups. You can learn about this, this, and you know, you don't have to fully commit. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars. You can just start exploring a little bit. Why don't we maintain that attitude after we get out of school? Yeah, we have it when we're children. If you look at any kid on the street, they are full of wonder and curiosity. And I just want to have more of that. Like, I am a curious person. I read, I listen to new things. I try to bring all that in, but the curiosity of a child is just unbelievable. It shouldn't be curiosity killed the cat. It should be curiosity grew the child or something. I don't exactly. know. Exactly. <laughs> so like I'm a, I'm a Cub Scout leader and they're talking about, you know, what video games they're playing and they're, you know, like showing me the cool rock that they found. And every couple of weeks I have a discussion with a different one that wants to talk about my favorite dinosaur, which is Stegosaurus, by the way. And so, you know, it's exposing yourself to this growth mindset. Roughly about 40% of the adult population has a growth mindset per Dr. Carol Dweck. But if you look among kids, all of them, they are sponges. They're exploring. They're going nuts with it. And that's why they have physical and mental and emotional growth as unparalleled. So just hang out with little kids for a while. And you're going to, unless you're a completely and totally grumpy old man, from that, you're going to get charged up. You're going to expand your thinking. You're going to learn something new. And so just do something like that on a regular basis. And 
if you do that and then you go back to your boring job, you'll be like, well, I wish I could be a pirate for this could be more fun. And so you'll start pulling aspects into that. And again, that starts to bend your curve. I have found that remembering what you like to do when you were a child is sort of like the cheat code to discovering what your passions and ambitions are that you forgot you had. Because when you were a kid, you're curious, you have all these interests, and you don't care about keeping up with the Joneses or how much money that proficient is going to pay. You just like it. And you just say that's what you want to do based on almost no information except a gut feeling. And then somehow, I think in our early teens, like 13 or 14, we realize, oh, we need to have more behind it than that. And we stop having that ambition-driven life that kids have. And when I quit Best Buy in 2016 and I was reading all these books on purpose and finding your true meaning in life, and I read dozens and dozens of them, none of them really helped. What helped was just remembering what I liked to do when I was a kid and then introducing that back into my life. (laughs) And so having some of those decade-long contacts is critical. So like my best friend from high school, who I refer to as my favorite sister, we started using Marco Polo a couple of months ago. And literally every day we do two or three messages going back and forth. And they're little things. They're like, you know, 15 second, 30 second things. But, you know, we're both going through some situations and stress and all that. And she said, this is one of the best things for her mental health is that just, you know, constant low exposure and the reminder of what jerk I can be, but also how like I bring out her best in some capacities. And so I would recommend that if somebody is feeling stuck, do something like that. Communicate with your best friend from when you were a 10 to 15 year old and just talk on a regular basis because it'll bring some of these things out and hopefully relight that fire. Yeah, that's what I actually did at that time was I sent messages to my sister and my mom and dad and a couple of my childhood friends. And I'm like, what What were my interests? And I started making a list. And I was surprised the things on that list that I hadn't done in almost 20 years. And that's a shame because I did those things before I was trying to conform to what everyone else expected me to do. You know what would be a great exercise is sit down and write a letter to current you from 10-year-old you, including the goofy little pictures and all that, and just let 10-year-old you talk to current you. And then the other thing is that have future you write a letter to today you about the good choices that you're making, you made to get them where they are today. So like there's a bad 1990s movie called Time Cop with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And in it, like there's this evil politician and he does a bunch of stuff and they have time travel. And so the future version of him comes back and talks to the current version, tells them to make these investments, do these things. And he's also like, and lay off the candy bars. <laughs> so if future you could come on back, what would they tell current you? And if past you, could communicate with current you, what would they remind you? And so having both these versions of yourself that can communicate with the you of the present, that is one of the ways to truly be the best version of you that you could be. I think they would probably both tell me to worry less about impressing others and just focus on doing what I like doing and everything will work out. (laughs) 
I'm trying to get better at just saying no to things I don't want to do, things I maybe committed to a while ago and I just don't want to anymore. Or I actually read in a book by Bob Goff, it was called Dream Big. And every Thursday, he has quit something day where he quits a habit, quits a project, quits a movie, something he has on his agenda, just gets rid of it. And we'll call someone up and say, sorry, I know you know about my quitting day. You read about it in the book. I got to stop doing this. And that's been extremely You're this helpful. week's winner. <laughs> yeah, you're this week's winner. <laughs> and so the other thing is practicing saying no up front so that you don't get in that situation. So my default as a parent is to tell my kids no. And in fact, my 15-year-old jokes about it. He's like, hey, die, I want to ask, can I do this? I know the answer is going to be no. But I'm going to ask anyway, which is good because he's learning to ask, even though the odds are tremendously stacked against him and consistently doing that's going to bring him success. But he also knows that I'm going to say no and the reasons why. And so it's strengthening his arguments. So he's getting better at, which will help him if he has to do sales down the road. And remember, everything is sales in some capacity. So it is a good thing. And so my kids also know that I'm going to say no, not because, you know, it's not money thing or whatever. It is a default because no, you can always turn to yes, but yes is, you know, you can't roll it back and say no down the road. And so it teaches them to protect their resources of time, money, relationships and all that. That's great because a lot of times when you tell someone yes and then you have to change your mind later, you're then letting them down because you had a commitment. And it's not fun to go back on a commitment that you said you were going to make. Right. Because as I teach my kids, you honor your commitment. You know, mm -hmm. You're going to finish out the semester with that sports team or that organization. You gave your word. Other people are counting on you. So be very careful of what you give your word to. You said sales Everything is selling. What do you mean by that? So the entire world is in a situation. Everybody's where they are. And to get them to change in some capacity, whether it's to give you money, to give you time, to give up something, you know, whatever, to create a change, Einstein or Newton toss is that we need an external force that acts upon it. Every, you know, body at rest tends to stay at rest until they're acted upon by an outside force. That outside force is influence. That is selling. I need to convince you in some capacity to change something. And the only way that you're going to do that is if whatever I am proposing creates value for you in some way. Whether it's a short-term value of, hey, you know, here's a donut, give me some money. Or if it's a longer term value, hey, change this behavior because it's going to ultimately get you in a better workplace or emotional place or what have you. So that change all comes about because of persuasion, because of sales. How do you get better at sales? Uh, by continuously doing it, by trying to understand what the other person ultimately wants or what is better for them than their current situation or path and being better able to communicate all that. Yeah. The communication part of sales to me is listening. 
And before I quit my job in 2016, what I was doing was running a Best Buy. And I did that for almost 10 years. And I was in charge of the sales team. And you wouldn't believe how many people would want to recommend a television or a computer or a washer and dryer that was completely opposite to what that person came in expressing that they were looking for. And I said, you know, if you just take them to what they were looking for and show them that, and that's it, your close rate's going to go through the roof. Just listen to them. Don't try to be cute. Don't try to be smarter than them. Most of the time, they already know what they want. They did the research at home before they came in. Or you bring them to it and then you ask them questions so that you can understand better. And they might not change their mind or they might realize that, no, this isn't going to fulfill what we really want. It fulfills what we think we need, but not what we really need. And so have to remember, we have two eyes, two ears, and one mouth, and they should be used in that proportion. Ask questions, shut up and listen. Let them discuss. You know, questions are there to help you understand. And so that's why whoever asks the questions really has the power. So when we first, you know, jumped on, one of the things that you thankfully didn't say is how you doing or what's new. I hate the question what's new. You know, the question that I ask people is what are you reading? What's influencing you now? What are you thinking? Because then I can get real insight in something of value other than hearing about, you know, the weather wherever it happened to be. I am reading a book right now by Bill Perkins, and the book is titled Die with Zero. And it's a personal finance book that's completely blowing my mind because he is saying, number one, the statistics show that every year after every decade after age 40, you're spending less money than the previous decade, but your net worth is going up. And so he's saying And I love this phrase. It's the dividend, the memory dividend. Spend your money now on experiences that you can withdraw from the rest of your life instead of waiting till you're 60 or 70 when you don't have as much time to pull from that bank. And that is awesome. (laughs) So one of the things that I always talked about as a financial planner is that you have time, energy, and money. And so too many people defer to the point where they have no energy. So if you look, the first part of retirement is really the go-go stuff. My friend uh, Tom Hegna talks about that every day Saturday when you first retire. And so as long as you've got enough to keep doing that and you've done the longevity planning and all that, have those experiences. Do the things, okay? Take the trip with the grandkids. Go and experience things. Go enjoy. Create memories and use them. And that's one of the reasons things like I'm not materialistic in any way, shape or form. I would rather have an experience than stuff in it any day. So like this weekend I went and I did this really cool hike with these waterfalls. We had to lay down and everything. It was awesome. And what did it cost us? It cost us gas to get there. And you know, the food that we, you know, needed to refuel with afterwards. Isn't that amazing? I've been in Norway now for two and a half weeks And our best experience so far cost the bus ride to get there. And it was when we were hiking four of the seven mountains that surround the town of Bergen. And it cost nothing. We just went and did it. And it was difficult. And we questioned if we could do it halfway up. We questioned if we could do it before we even went there. 
you know? I'm ready to give up. And then you get to the top and you're like, wow. And you look back down and you go, that wasn't actually that bad. I wonder if I could climb that mountain over there. <laughs> and so this is where you challenge yourself. And on the other side of the doubt and difficulty lies the reward. And there's a life lesson there because all too often people don't even start because the activation energy is too high. Oh, that first hill, I don't know if I can do it. Give it a try. See what's on the other side. Yeah. What's the worst that happens if you start to hike up it and you can't do it? Yeah. But did you die? No. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I, and this book by Bill Perkins talks really about spending some of that money earlier than you maybe anticipated. And he talked about a friend of his in his early 20s who went and backpacked through Europe or something and then lost all that working time and working money. And well, he was in the city working and making money. The guy came back from Europe. They basically both had the same amount of money in the bank. But now this guy had all these experiences and was able to climb the ladder even quicker because now he actually had an interesting life and an interesting story to share. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so that thing that we said, you know, the best investment is in you, you know, whether it's learning, whether it's going someplace to experience. I mean, as a martial artist, all the time that I spent pushing myself and challenging myself translates directly into me being able to do things within the work environment that others can't. Because guess what? I fought Mike Tyson's sparring partner to a standstill, even though he was, uh, you know, one and a half times my weight. And, you know, completely beat the crap out of me. Couldn't knock me out. Well, he could knock me out, but I didn't stop fighting. And so that just, you know, teaches you things that when it comes into the work world, oh, I got to do that, that stuff. No big deal. Let's do it. That's true. Yeah. So it pushes you. This is why as an ultra marathoner or, you know, if people are, have like mastered a new language or a different skill, difficult things doing difficult things makes you better and makes you believe in yourself more so that when work or life throws you the curveball you're like so no big deal let's you know just figure it out and do it what's on your calendar this year that you are looking forward to that will challenge you so i am going to do the hamster wheel in november so the hamster wheel is a four mile loop and you just do it over and over and over and over again. So I'm actually planning on doing it with my 15 year old kid where I'll do three loops and he'll do one. And in 24 hours, we should be able to do over a hundred miles. So we get really cool belt buckles. So is the goal to reach a hundred miles or is the goal to go until you can't go any further? Well, if you do achieve 100 miles, then you get the belt buckle. I really want the belt buckle because it has like a zombie hamster or something cool like that on it. But it, you know, the, you like live in a tent while you're there. And so this is going to be a sort of thing where, yeah, I'm going to end up doing 72, 76 miles, what have you. You know, my kid who's a sprinter, so it's a different sort of thing for him to do this, but it's going to be something that we'll be able to talk about for the entire rest of his life and he'll tell his kids about you know granda and i going out and doing this crazy race this is one of the reasons why i do these ragnars and things like that so it's a huge challenge it's going to be completely different than anything we've done it's going to be a learning and bonding experience and he's going to once he's done it be able to have 
this confidence that what other teenager has acquired. And so this will translate into him being a better Boy Scout. This will translate into him being a better student, hopefully. This will give him all sorts of stuff that he can draw from for his future. That's one of the things that we're looking forward to. That sounds awesome. And it just makes you an interesting person to be around because you're pushing yourself and you're trying to grow. And I just think reading and listening to you and hearing all the different things that you've explored, you've had a lot of great mentors in your life. How do you go about picking a mentor or finding a mentor in a area you want to get better at? So some of it's been luck, like, you know, finding Master Grant decades ago, that was pure luck. And, you know, I thank God for that. And my oldest kid's named after him. So that opened up an entire world. Others are if you're doing something that is of interest to you and your radar is up, you're paying attention, you're seeing other people in the field, you're seeing individuals who are in leadership positions, it is being ready to just reach on out and ask. So, for example, um, when I was working for the one company, the vice president who was in charge of a component of it was somebody who I interacted with occasionally through some charity work and professional leadership within the industry. And so I reached out to him like, hey, Glenn, you know, will you mentor me? Will you know, I've got this vision. And we talked about it. He's like, yeah, I will. Thank you. And one of the things that we discovered with one of the trade association mentorship programs was that both the mentor and the mentee increased their productivity. You know, the numbers were somewhere around 35% for each because the younger person's learning and has a good model and the older one is getting the fire lit under their butt in some ways. You know, if you want to make sure that you know something, teach it is one of the old adages. So there's the influx of energy and insight and the return to fundamentals and questioning that the mentor gets out of these sort of things. So if you want to actually grow and develop yourself, be a mentor as much as get a mentor. That's something I need to do a better job at, I would say. One of my mentors, James Altucher, has what he calls the plus, minus, and equals. I was going to bring that up, actually, because I heard him talk about that on a podcast a couple of months ago, and that is a spectacular idea. So in case your listeners aren't familiar with it, go on into it, James. Yeah, so the plus is exactly what we're talking about here. It's the uh, Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid. It's someone who is your knowledgeable and wise elder, possibly, who can teach you and guide you and take you on the quest of learning what you're interested in. The equals are your peers or the people who are wanting to get better at that with you. And you can challenge each other and try new things and fail in front of each other and grow and share the challenges and the struggles. And you'll all be understanding and going along with it at the same time. And then the minus are the people that you're teaching. I was at an event in Vandenberg Air Force Base put on by NASA, and Charlie Bowden, the uh, administrator of NASA, was there. 
and he said, you need to be able to explain something as if you're talking to a child. If you can't, you don't understand it well enough. That's the Albert Einstein idea. Explain it to me like I'm five. Be able to explain it to a six-year-old. So going back to that peer-to-peer, the equal, you know, people don't realize that J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were in a writing group together. And they would get together at the pub every single week and talk about their writing. And if you want a pure equivalent of that today, Mark Manson, Ryan Holiday, Gary Vee, and James Clear are in a writing group and get together about once a quarter. Look at the minds there. Look at the production. Look at the number of books sold. I mean, I swear it's got to be well north of $50 million and they're in this group and they get together and they hold each other accountable and they beat each other up and it makes them all better. And guess what? Because they're doing this with each other, we all benefit because we get the output from it. It's a great model. And I am building a mastermind group right now with three friends and we're all in different industries and we're all working on different things. But what we have in common is one, we're all Christians. Two, we all want to get better in multiple buckets. And three, we all think outside the box. So our goal is to meet every other week for an hour. And we're actually following the format that was in John Lee Dumas's book, The Common Path to Uncommon Success. And it broke down to have this mastermind group where one of you is in the hot seat each time and talks about your biggest struggle. And then the other three help you to overcome that. And you do that again and again. And you rotate and you iterate and you all improve. And some weeks it's going to suck when you're on that hot seat. But you know what? Two weeks later, you're going to go back to your buddies and be like, thanks, guys. I needed that. And you're not going to want to let them down. It's easy for me to let myself down. It's very difficult for me to let down my friends. And this is why you have accountability partners, where it's a running partner, a lifting partner, a writing partner, you know, having this commitment to others brings out our best. So for me, the minus is when I'm writing on my blog. It's when I'm having these conversations and I'm sharing what I'm reading and what I'm learning about with podcast listeners. That's where it shows up. I do want to do more coaching and training because it it really does prove that you actually understand what you're talking about when you have to actually teach someone else. And it comes back to what we talked about when you were at Best Buy. You know, the listening of being able to not open your mouth and say, here's your solution, but allow the person that you're talking with to start working it out on their own, give them a little guidance, maybe a little Socratic dialogue, you know, but being on that path of self-discovery and you being their Yoda, you can't fight the fight for them. You can't go into the cave and battle Darth Vader, but you can help them understand what they need and bring it out of themselves. Can you think of any other ways I could experience more of the coaching part of the minus on that equation? Do you have a mentee? Do you have somebody who's 10 years behind you that you're looking at and saying, wow, you know, they're, they've got a lot of the characteristics. They've got the qualities. I want to help unlock their potential. I, I possibly not. I have some of those relationships, but I haven't 
concretely defined it in some way where it's like, okay, I'm going to take you on. Do you think you need to do that? I think so. So like I sit on the boards of a couple of startup companies, um, you know, one's the coffee company, one's a virtual reality training company, a couple other ones. And so like the CEO of the one company is 25 years old, 25 years old. And his, he's just, you know, beyond his years in a lot of ways. And I started working with him about two years ago and we talk once a week at minimum. So we've got a set weekly meeting and it's like, all right, man, let's talk. What do you need to grow and develop? And he's like, you know, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about that? And so it allows me to move into the elder statesman way in a lot of ways. But I just really enjoy being around this guy. I mean, in fact, I'm getting together with him for drinks tomorrow evening with him and another uh, guy who's a community leader in a different capacity. And we're just going to, you know, so we've got a 25-year-old there, a 40-year-old, and I'll be uh, 50, as I said. And we're going to sit there and we're going to have completely different backgrounds that we've come from mindsets, skill sets, focuses, where we want to go for the future, but it's going to give us a chance to discuss and bring out the best for each. I think that is great to actually be deliberate and helping others and then actually having a schedule to it to where you both can expect this each week. And so that way, all week long, as he's working on his business that's in growth mode, he knows he's going to be able to talk to you and he can write things down and come to you with these questions. Yep. Every, every Tuesday morning, 9 a.m., it's scheduled. And he knows, you know, if he's got questions that are like really eating at him or he wants some insider things, he just, you know, texts me and we'll get together on, two, you know, Friday at 2 p.m. for 15 minutes or he'll, you know, hey, you got two minutes. And so he doesn't abuse it. But he also knows that it's always there if need be. Now, what about paying for a mentor? So let's say you identify an area you want to improve in. Let's just say it's your communication skills and your selling ability. I know there's a lot of resources out there for free, like books and podcasts and YouTube. And there's people who would coach you for free. But do you think it's okay to pay someone to be your coach or your mentor? And so mentoring and coaching are a little bit different. So like I do a lot of coaching and people pay me for, you know, to hold them accountable, to look at their numbers, to do role play with them, to practice, to, you know, go through their assumptions and help work on that. So there is that capacity with the mentorship. It's more free flowing. It's more them driven. It is, you know, we're not, focused on specific outcomes of we need to do these things to help your business reach the next level. So there are different ideas, you know, mentors can be paid. Um, you know, for example, I have a small portion of ownership in these companies. So I'm basically sort of like an operational board member and they come to me with different ideas and just explore and all that because we know we're going to win together long range. The coaching, you know, I have people who pay me X dollars per hour to go on in and help resolve skill set issues, will set issues, kick their butt as appropriate versus, you know what, we're trying to figure this out and I'm not sure what we need. So coaching versus mentoring breaks down in my mind, at least along those sort of lines in some ways. So should you pay for it? 
know, in some capacities, yes, you should pay. I paid for my martial arts instructions for decades until my master's like, you're teaching four nights a week for me. You don't pay anymore. What martial art do you know? So my primary background is traditional Chungdukwan Taekwondo. So old school when we, you know, we still punch people in the head. So it's not these jumpy, spinny, flighty kicks. It's like, you know, I'm going to kick you right in the gut hard so that you stop. And so it's most of the guys that I trained with were corrections officers, police officers, military. And they, they were all much bigger men than me. You know, six two, two twenty. You know, so they were pretty hardcore. Here I am, you know, five ten, hundred and seventy five pounds. And I was one hundred and sixty pounds when I was fighting. So we trained under that, but we also cross trained a lot of ways. We trained boxing. My master's best friend was the world judo champion. So we got influence of all these other things, but my primary was traditional old school taekwondo. That's been one of the things I've had an interest in for decades, and I haven't gotten into it yet because there's certain interests that I have. I know that to do them well, I'm going to need to dedicate more time than I have right now. I have so many hobbies and interests that I sort of go, okay, I have to get this one to a certain point, and then I'll move on to that one. Right now, I'm, I'm getting my pilot's license, and so that's taking a lot of time. Once I graduate from that and I, and I have that kind of mastered, I will then go, okay, what's the next one on the list that I want to become an expert in? There's so many. So how much longer until you get the pilot's license? Well, most, well, this trip is slowing me down, but most likely within the next month or two. Okay. And it's not slowing you down. It is giving you a forced break. And there's a difference. Okay. It's not like you're carrying a 500 pound pack on your back. You're off checking out cool new stuff that's going to revitalize you. So there's that, you know, this is a side quest. This is not uh, carrying a boat on your back sort of thing. That's a good point. That's one thing. So if you finish your pilot's license in six weeks, eight weeks, this is the proper time to start exploring and finding what are you going to do next? Because like when I you write a book, you finish the book and the day after you send it off to the editors, you're like, oh, it's time to get up and write. Oh. No, it's not. I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm in a different position. The same thing with like runners. All right, I've got this race coming up. All right, you finish that race. And if you don't have something else that you're looking forward to doing, you have what's sometimes called a ragnover, you know, where it's sort of like the hangover or postpartum depression. Okay, I've completed this. What do I do next? And having a day or two where you have nothing on the schedule big like that, that's good, but getting back into the game, finding your next thing you're working on is one of the ways to continuously move forward with excellence because you don't have the big drop off. Too many people do a marathon and then never run again. Too many people get their black belt and then stop training. Too many people write the one book and then don't write again because that was the big defining thing. And that's one of the reasons why I did one marathon and then I signed up for another one 
because I'm like, I'm not going to be one of those guys who just does one and never does it again. That's why I've done multiple ultra marathons. That's why I've written multiple books. It's finding that next challenge, that next thing to be working towards and having that continuous mountain in the distance that you're working towards is one of the ways to make sure that you have happiness because you fall in love with the process as opposed to one particular outcome or destination. I have had a tendency in my life up until the last few years maybe to where I would start a lot of hobbies or interests and then just throw them away and move on to something new. And I never really got good and I never really finished anything. And I realized I needed to become more of a dedicated learner and not just quit when it got a little difficult. Right. If you're giving up when it's difficult, that's one thing. If you give it up because you're like, you know what, this doesn't really excite me, that's okay. You know, giving something up because you realize this book sucks. You know, I'm a quarter of the way through it. I'm not going to finish it. That's fine. You gave it enough of an opportunity. You know, giving up something after a little while because you're like, you know what, it's not that exciting. It doesn't, you know, bring me the joy that I thought it would. That's totally okay. Giving up when it's difficult, that's not good. Yep. And it's really easy to do. And I've found that I have a lot more luck now because, well, one, on the podcast, I share with everyone what I'm doing. And so I'm creating all these accountability partners that email me and text me and say, hey, I heard you mention this on the show. How's it going? But like, oh, I quit. I wouldn't be really that great. <laughs> so I've found that building in public and sharing publicly what you're working on helps with the accountability because if you just do it in secret, it's really easy to just quit. Right? It's really easy or it's really difficult. If you've built the muscles of discipline, if you've built that commitment factor to yourself by repeatedly doing difficult things, you get to the point where you're like, yeah, I could give up. I'm not gonna. And I've reached that point probably two or three times in flight school because it's not easy. It's one of the hardest things that I've ever had to learn because it's not just flying the plane. It's all the micro skills of flying, all the actual technical skills of how an airplane works and weather systems and navigation and wind and communication on the radio. All these things are difficult and they're all full-time jobs independently on their own. And you have to learn all of them to a decent enough level to be able to take a plane and fly anywhere in the country. <laughs> yeah. More power to you. I have no desire to do that, but you know, having friends who are pilots, you build an appreciation for all the different components that go into this big, massive thing that you then can do on a regular basis. And like you said, the synergy from learning these skills there's, it's showing up everywhere in my life. The improvement in my ability to detect weather and my navigation skills is showing up everywhere in my life. It's not just flying related. Yeah, it's teaching you strategic thinking so that you're looking at the horizon instead of what's right in front of you, that you're learning to read the signs and signals so that you can be predictive in terms of what you're doing. And that translates into your business. And you're learning to communicate more succinctly on the radio. And that translates into being able to be better within your podcasts and your writing and these other components. So these synergistic concepts 
from doing difficult things, whether it's learning to pilot, whether it's martial arts, whether it's something else, are all, as we said, these side quest skills and resources that come on in and help you within that main quest. And people who aren't challenging themselves consistently in whatever capacity, they're missing out on this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I encourage folks to try new things and don't commit to becoming a master. Just commit to seeing if you enjoy it at all. And if you do, then figure out what it would take to go to the next step. And I love that. It, it is a joy to learn new things. And I know I'm going to continue to, I, I have a whole big list that I'm keeping and uh, I'm just kind of working down it and new things come up on it all the time. That enthusiasm of a child that we talked about earlier, you're reflecting it. And the smile on your face talking about this is beautiful, for lack of a better term. I mean, you're glowing from it. And so that's coming back to the avocation and passion as opposed to normal occupation. I completely understand what you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation when you said you have a hard time going to sleep on Sunday nights, not because you're stressed, but because you're so excited for tackling the next day. And that's how I feel almost every day. And it's because I was deliberate about creating a life that I wanted for myself. And I'm curious before we wrap up, what are you working on right now that's got you really excited? So as you know, I released Everyday Excellence and my goal is to make the New York Times and the Amazon 100 on this. And partially because of the economics of it, because it will then free me up to be able to continue to do things like this, but also the number of people that I can reach. I mean, if I can reach 10 million people through my efforts, that's 10 million people whose lives are better off, who then become little nodes of excellence that are resonating within their worlds, their communities, their families. And so the impact of that could be completely and totally immeasurable. But if I can reach those sort of levels where I'm doing this, that then frees me up further to be able to spend more time on the road speaking to groups and individuals. That frees me up to be able to take the time and continue to grow the website and reach more people and help them out. That gives me the capacity to, down the road, be able to write all the other books that are rallying around my head and be able to reach more people and help them out in different capacities. So that is my current mechanism of unlocking excellence for other people and ultimately to have the time and resources to be able to do more within my family and community and bring them to the higher levels of excellence too. I went through the first 14 days of your book and it's funny you mentioned James Clear because that's the vibe I got reading your book was the atomic atomic habits, the bare, like the basics, do this today and then move on. The brush one tooth today and then you're going to want to brush them all. I mean, that's a silly one. Floss one tooth. The book is so simple and easy to just take the next step. And I just love how you laid it out. So I'm going to continue to go through it because we didn't even go. I have a whole page here of other things we could have talked about based on your backstory. I can't wait to see all the other books you're going to make because you have such a colored life and so much experience and you've done so many things that 
you really do have the wisdom to share and you did it in this book. So I, I'm really impressed with it. Oh, thank you, James. So, you know, I've got lots of scars, both visible and invisible from things that I've gone through, but those are lessons. And hopefully people can shorten their learning curve in a lot of ways because of the guidance, that mentorship that we had talked about. You know, this is a vehicle for me to be able to take my experience, my exposure, and be able to bring it out to individuals so that they can get better quicker and be able to achieve more because that then creates the positive feedback loop for them. If we can have more and more of these individuals who are accelerating their growth because of it, look at what we can do across society. with it. That's pretty cool. And when we talked about the plus minus and equals, James Altucher always makes it clear the plus does not have to be someone you know. It can be a book, and I think it for sure can be your book. So I'm just grateful that you came on here and I do want to give you a chance to tell the listener where we can learn more about you and pick up a copy of the book and then give you a chance to share any other nuggets you want to share. So you can find the book basically anywhere books are sold. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, you know, all the normal places like that. They can follow me on both Twitter or Facebook. Both of those are at EDE with Joe. That's at EDE for Everyday Excellence, Joe being me. Uh, and on my website, everyday-excellence, that's a great place to continuously find new information. I put up six microblogs per week with new information. There's links to the YouTube channel. There's links to all the podcasts. People can buy the books, but it gives people a great resource if they want to tap into it to help them on their own journey of excellence. That's excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this wisdom with us. And I hope that we'll talk again because I want to keep going into the, the different side quests that you've been on in your life. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, man. Just let me know when you're available and we'll sit down and we'll have another conversation. Thank you, Joe. Be excellent and grow today. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.